We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show, where later tonight we'll be taking a deep dive into Series 10 of Doctor Who. Dave, hello. Hello, Rob. Yes, we'll be talking about Series 10. Last month we had Mark and Richard on. Thank you very much, guys, once again for coming on. And the three of us plus yourself, Rob, nominated some series to watch. We said there were going to be new series seasons this time, and one of them won. Did indeed. And I want to echo thanking Mark and Richard there for dropping past your home to do the January episode. Dave, it's always so nice to have an episode each year where I'm the listener. (laughs) It's actually really cool. Um, And also, something a little noteworthy to mention at the top here, especially for our newer listeners, we're now two months into year nine of the podcast, so I thought I'd mention that. Wow. Yeah, but you're quite right. We put out four seasons, and the results were, Dave, Series 7A, the Matt Smith one, 12.7%. That was my nomination, so yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't go too well. <laughs> Series 5, uh, also Smithy, 16.6%. Series 3, which is a tenant series, of course, 29.3%. And Series 10, with Capaldi, 41.4%. So that's why we're doing it tonight. That was the vote on X. That was a very clear winner. That was Mark's nomination, so thank you, Mark. And, oh, look... I, I have thoughts on this series, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Me too, Dave. And I'll say up front, I don't think it's any hardship to talk about this series. There's a lot to talk about. No, there really is, although I was a little bit worried when it first came up, but I'll, I'll explain why when we get there. We should also mention, Rob, last week we dropped our cold take review of Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Yes. So that's out in the wild. It is. It is doing very well for itself numbers-wise. Looks like we've got some Star Wars fans out there in our audience. Well, that's good because we're doing Attack of the Clones next month. Yes, (laughs) whether you like it or not. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Shall we rip into some news? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to kick us off, Rob? Yeah, Dave. I thought we could kick off by... Normally we present a piece each and we tic-tac, but maybe we can both riff on this one because it is such a big story. And that is that there's still no word on Millie Gibson actually leaving Doctor Who, although it seems to be a fait accompli. And we have Virada Sithu, who we both know from Andor, already filming Series 2 episodes with Shooty. There's been some debate as to whether Virada is actually a companion, but we've had Mandeep Gill out there saying, oh yeah, I've messaged her, you know, saying congratulations, enjoy the journey. So Mandeep Gill seems to have revealed that she is a companion. And yet there is radio silence from Bad Wolf and the BBC on Millie leaving. Shall we riff on this, Dave? Yeah, so as I'm about to discuss when we get to short topics, I was literally at a Doctor Who event yesterday Hmm. with a whole bunch of fans, and I'm not going to shock you here, I suspect, Rob, by saying this was definitely a topic of conversation. (laughs) I'm sure it was. And uh, we spoke to a couple of people, very different people from different parts of the country, in fact, Mm -hmm. who both said they had the, the inside scoop the inside skinny on what's going on in Cardiff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I'm not going to repeat verbatim what either of those gentlemen said because 
I don't know how true it is, and there are libel laws in both this country and the UK. Sure. And, and also, we don't want to just sort of you know, give salacious gossip when we don't know it's true. No. But there was a lot of overlapping similarity in what was being said, and the vibe of what was being said does tally with what we do know. Mm. I, I think we can very safely say that Millie Gibson has left. Yes. And I think we could also factually say her departure was not announced Hmm. so something weird has happened there it's extraordinary that Verada has started filming stuff where there are photographs of her out there because normally the BBC is very good at going well okay this guest star or this guest monster is about to film something in the streets of Cardiff someone's going to get a photo so let's announce it now and again that hasn't happened and this is all now just being wound up and, and sort of mixed up with ongoing rumours about whether Shooty Gatwari is going to do a third series or not. Mm. I'll leave that there and see what your thoughts are, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, we've seen Verada filming what looks like a 1950s-themed episode, uh, which was quite interesting to, to look at visually. But when that happened, I thought, aha, uh-huh, they leaked the Millie news because they knew she'd be filming in public. And, you know, I wasn't too surprised at that point. I could feel the hand of PR in the background, Dave. But then I started to wonder where the official announcement was. And as of recording this, there hasn't been one. And that that I do find pretty surprising. I mean, to rewind, for, for people who have been living under a rock, a, a UK newspaper reported last month that Millie had been dropped from the show. And so many fans were like, that can't be true. You know, she's so nice and she's only just started. And I, I jumped in straight away back then by saying, well, no, she's recorded a series already. She's recording some stuff for the second series. That's a longer run than Bill had in Capaldi's final series, Timely. We're, we're looking at that tonight. Yep. It's not dissimilar to Martha, who was in a series and then, then did some cameos after that. So I wasn't too shocked by all of this as it sort of happened. But as things have rolled on, and as I say, we don't have the official announcement What has surprised me is precisely that, because normally RTD is so chatty and ready to explain things, but on this he's been absolutely silent. And especially as there's a degree of reputation damage in play, you know, with the word that Millie has been dropped. That was the newspaper's line. I thought he'd be leaping in to defend her or to defuse the situation at the very least, to say, look, there'll be more to come in due course. I mean, that's crisis and issues management 101. I used to train people on this stuff back in my <laughs> PR days, Dave. Yeah. And I can't believe that the BBC or Bad Wolf or RTD's executive team aren't across how to react in these situations. So to let the story just run wild and not contradict it, they're sending a very definite message to fans and they know they'd be sending it. And as of right now, it's still being sent. So, ooh, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of dance around the topic a bit, but it's it's an odd one right now. Look, it is. And there is, as often is the case with these sort of rumours and speculation, a, a sliding scale of possibilities. Yes. One is, as I mentioned in our episode last month, that this is just an unintended consequence 
of doing the filming for seasons one and two of Shooty's Time back to back and not releasing season one until they're well into the filming of season two. And, and they don't want to announce that, you know, Millie was always planned to leave at the end of the first season or shortly thereafter, but we don't mm. announce that before her first proper episode is aired, so we're holding it back, hence the radio silence. That That is definitely possible. Uh, it is possible that she was dropped, whether there was a amicable or non-amicable split between the actress and the production team, and it's a case of sort of PR men and lawyers at 20 paces and no one wants to say the wrong thing because, you know, if she has been dropped or if, even if it's been an amicable sort of split from a contract, you don't want to be the employer who makes her unemployable for others because, mm. you know, in today's legal world, that's a minefield. So, you know, there's all of that that's all going on. Um, as I say, I've, I've now heard sort of various different takes on exactly what has happened and, and what Millie may or may not have done, and I'm not going to air those on the podcast. Uh, I am going to say that there have been a number of comments that all revolve around a cultural difference between Shooty and Millie as Gen Z actors and actresses mm. and and RTD as a, a sort of a, I don't know whether he's a boomer or a Gen X, but somewhere in there, um, that there has been a clash of their styles and their expectations. And, and one thing I think we can say about Shooty is that he left Sex Education, where you know he, he was the he was the breakout star of that. Mm-hmm. He wants to go on and do the next big thing of his career. He's told sign up to Doctor Who. It's this global phenomenon. It's got Disney money coming in. It's going to be you know the great big next thing for your career. And he goes, Yep, great, that sounds perfect. I'll do a season or two of that, and then they get on to the next thing. And suddenly finds he's got a three season deal, and it takes eighteen months to two years before his first episodes are even shown. Notwithstanding mm. one Christmas special. And he could be very reasonably saying, well, hang on, I'm stuck doing nothing. Other, other than a couple of lines in the Barbie movie, I'm now off television and I want to be on television. So why aren't you showing my episodes? If you're not showing my episodes, let me do something else. Mm. Uh, again, that is speculation, but it is not unreasonable that Shooty would want to go, hang on, I've just had my breaking out role and now I've got, now I'm, now I'm, Invisible. Yeah, think things will change for him very soon. I mean, in three months, we'll have a season of Doctor Who. Yes. And then five months after that, we'll have a Christmas episode. And then five months after that, we'll have another season of Doctor Who. And we start to get into this five-month schedule sort of thing. And, and that'll be quite good. But um, I can imagine the frustration of people just not seeing you when you're the Doctor. Yeah, so look, this is this is all rumour. It's all conjecture. It, it is... I, I think we can say it's not baseless rumor or conjecture. We are we are at least sort of adding two and two and getting something near four. Mm-hmm. But I think we also just don't have anything like all the pieces of the puzzle. Well, the newspaper has said what it has said, and it's not being sued for defo. We can say that as well. No, no, that's true. But sometimes it's easy just to, you know, not stoke the Streisand effect and get more publicity from suing than you would from just ignoring it. That's yeah, always, always a danger. But, but look, the reality is, as I said, I was at a Doctor Who event in Melbourne, which is a long way from Cardiff, about as far physically as you can get from Cardiff, apart from, you know, maybe, I don't know, Christchurch. But um, Yeah, I was going to say, our friends in New Zealand might be arcing up on that one. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. But we're getting a long way from Cardiff, and this was a topic of conversation amongst a number of fans. Mm. And, and everybody wants to know, everybody's saying, have you have you heard of the speculation? Do you have the inside running? Yeah. And, and people are sharing those, those stories. So fans are noticing and fans do care. And fans are going to want answers at some point. I'm not saying that in an entitled, we demand answers, but just uh, look, we're fans because we love the show. We want to support the show. Could, could you, you know, give us something? 
I can't think of many more shows where the fans are really into the history than Doctor Who and even just documenting it from an historical point of view. This stuff always eventually has to come out in some way, even if it's like looking at the J&T bio that came out long after he was dead and some of the, the stories in that. People see this not just as salacious, but as, as important. It's historical. Well, or just look at the Christopher Eccleston stuff where nobody really was satisfied for years mm. with the reason that Eccles uh, went away after one season. And, and I think now people do have a much better idea of what that story is. We've seen certainly Christopher Eccleston's version. RTD has been very professional, not given his version. But, but people, you're right, although there's always a little bit of... Um, you know, sort of down the pub while let's tell a bit of a war story isn't this amusing. But for the most part, it is very much, this is a show we love and we want to know the history. Why did a very good doctor who was at the forefront of bringing the show back from the wilderness walk out after one season? That's that's something that people do want documented. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and here, why is this lovely companion who we've seen in one story being bright and perky and full of beans and all her comments about becoming a companion have been very positive? Why is she gone? Yeah. Yes, no. So uh, less news, more uh, talk show fodder perhaps, but that's all I've got to say. I don't think I can say anything more. That's good. I think it was fun to riff on, especially for people out there who might not have a circle of Doctor Who friends around them and and just want to hear some some people chatting about it perhaps. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. And hopefully we'll know more this time next month. Great. Got a a final news story here. A quick one, Dave. From time to time, the BBC uploads a bunch of scripts to its website, which people might find interesting in a general sort of way, right through to people who want to learn how to write scripts for TV, and they can download these real examples and study them and work from them. So that that's really cool. It's a great thing the BBC does. And a recent bunch has just gone online, which includes the specially written audition script from RTD that Shudi Gatwa was given for his audition. It's a two-hander with Shooty introducing himself to another character in the scene, and I quote, I came from another universe, but the Time Lords adopted me, and that's my heritage now, the very last Time Lord in existence. Notable there, perhaps, for anyone still believing the YouTubers out there who have been saying, oh, RTD's going to retcon the Timeless Child. He's a real Doctor Who fan. <laughs> he won't let that nonsense stand. I think this is RTD's flag in the sand. Shooty Gatwa's audition has him explicitly talking about the Timeless Child reveal as absolutely canon. It does, although I read it more as RTD trying to square the circle a little bit with that comment about, well, I may not be a Time Lord, but I'm off Time Lord heritage and I, for want of a better term, identify as a Time Lord. Right. So so you can go forth and still do the I'm the last of the Time Lord stuff and I'm from Gallifrey and all the rest of it. You you can still do that whilst also not closing the door on the timeless child thing. I, I think that is a little bit of a having your cake and eating it too scenario. How that will play out when you get to real hard scripts, I don't know. But I, I yeah, I did think that was a little bit of a squaring the circle there from RTD. Interesting point of view. May I subscribe to your newsletter, Dave? <laughs> I would hope you do. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Let's move on to short topics. And normally, because I'm leading this episode, I would go first. But Dave, you've been to something very cool. We've teased it already. You were at a Wendy Padbury event for the Sirens of Audio. Why don't you kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. I was at my 
second, third, my third Sirens of Audio event in Australia. I've wow. been to the Sophie Aldred one, the Candy Manning one, and now the Wendy Padbury one in Melbourne. So I was along there with a few friends of the podcast, uh, Richard, Tom, Aaron, uh, a few others were there. So that was really good. Um, it was a really fun day. It was just, it is just fun, Rob, as you know, to rock up to Doctor Who events mm-hmm. where you're amongst fans who are all hanging off every word of somebody who was in a TV show in 1969 yeah. and, and, you know, <laughs> not ashamed to be there and, and, and just generally having fun and, and catching up with old friends. And a big part of these days is just hanging out with old friends and catching up and all the rest of that. But look, it was a good turnout in Melbourne. It was a well-run event, as always, from Phil and the team at the Sirens of Audio. So that was really good uh wendy was in great form she's the perfect sort of classic era guest because she is energetic she actually has memories of the show she knows what her stories were called and remembers instance from each one which is always very helpful uh but also she's sort of aware enough i think that the passage of time is stuff that she could tell a few uh, home truths about some stuff. Uh, there was one actor, for example, she talked about what a bit of a creep he was, and there was a couple of other stories she told. I'll move on to in a minute. Now, I believe, as always, the Sirens of Audio are putting the panels and the Q&As up on their YouTube feed or their podcast feed. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how they'll do it, so I'm not going to spoil everything from that. They've, they've run the convention. They deserve to get the... Uh, get the, the the views and the likes and the and, and the likes so um please go if you want to hear more of the details about wendy padbury but but a few things i'll just sort of mention um friend of the show rob kelly was there it was good to be able to say hi to rob for the first time in person oh that's fabulous that was good he, he did have to get away a bit early but it was good to at least see each other in in person for once so that yes. was nice he regularly talks to us on x he, yeah. he absolutely does so that, that was fantastic but look lots of really interesting stories and anecdotes from wendy um she made a couple of comments sort of in passing about the production team being, you know, quite drunk quite a lot of the time. And, <laughs> and I, I, I got up and I asked her a question. I said, well, Terence Dix was actually quite detailed and scathing about um, Derek Sherman and Peter Bryant and the, the professionalism of that team when he was the, you know, brand new assistant script editor. Do you want to, do you want to expand on that? And she said, no, absolutely. Terence was telling the truth. And she says that even by the culture of the BBC in the 1960s, that production office was terrible. And she said that they would go to the producer's run, usually on the Thursday of the recording week, and the two of them would just be absolutely just three sheets to the wind by the time they got to the producer's run wow. and had no useful feedback to give give her nothing useful to say. It was just a complete waste of everybody's time. So it was interesting to hear something that I'd heard Terrence Dix talk about many years ago when he was in Melbourne and hear Wendy talk about what that was like as one of the performers on the show. So, so that just gives you an example of the fact that she... You know, it wasn't sitting there slamming these people, but just saying, yeah, look, this is the truth. These yeah. There were problems in this production team, and, and that probably is something you see with just how... I, I mean, we, we've spoken before, Rob, about how Terrence Dix basically just pulls season six to the finish line on his bare shoulders with a bit of help from Mac Hulk and, mm-hmm. and Robert Holmes, and you know, I think this just proved that, that theory. So in 2074, when Millie Gibson is touring Australia, she may... <laughs> <laughs> she may tell her stories. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating how these things do sort of come out. Um, really interesting was Wendy talking about filming Tales of the TARDIS and particularly just the amount of resource and time that went into that. So she said that Russell T Davies rang her up and said, I really want you to do this. She said, look, I haven't performed in front of a camera for 40 years. I'm not sure I can. And, you know, I'm older now. I don't want to remember lines. But, you know, eventually he coaxed her to do it and Fraser was doing it. So she sort of said yes. Now, six minutes of 
actual footage that she recorded, Rob. Mm-hmm. That took a full day to film. Yeah, that's not surprising. It surprised me. I, I know oh, really? that things are longer these days, but it, it did surprise me. But but Wendy again was just astounded by almost the opulence of things where they said, oh, you know, we'll come down to Cardiff, we'll put you up in a really nice hotel the night before, and then a car will pick you up and take you to the recording. She said, I, I don't need a car to pick me up. I'll I'll drive myself there so I can leave in my own car straight from the, the recording. They said, no, 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 we can't have that. I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get the car to take you back. You have a second night in the hotel, and, and then you can leave fresh in the morning. And she's like, okay, what, is, what does this car do for the eight hours I'm, you know, in, in record? Okay, this is clearly how things are done. She did confirm the story that several of these people were at that hotel that they were being put up put up at and Matthew Waterhouse completely coincidentally had checked in with his husband and it was his, apparently his husband's birthday. So they go, let's, let's go to a really expensive hotel in, in Cardiff and just have a nice you know, dinner and a nice night. And yeah. suddenly, you know, there's... There's Fraser Hines and there's Wendy Padbury and there's Janet Fielding and there's Peter oh, Davison and so I'm what's like, Matthew oh. thinking? And um, um, <laughs> apparently they all said, "Look, we're not allowed to talk about what it is." And he's like, "Okay, I understand that." And was very professional about it, but I, okay. I think he probably would have um, been sitting there going, "Well, I haven't been invited to something." Mm, but it's understandable why. <laughs> yeah. No. So yeah. Look, that, that was really interesting, and, and and like when we saw Sophie and, and Katie, there are new stories that these actors and actresses have to tell which is always really interesting she talked about working for big finish and uh, again because of the lead time of that big finish has in terms of the production gave us some stories about people that she has worked with that no one's actually announced she's working with yet um, oh really so <laughs> if you want those spoilers go check out the sirens of audio feed assuming they keep them in um she also talked about some other work that she's been doing she's like oh, I, re- I recorded one of these for this sort of thing oh has that been announced yet? No? Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, there was a bit of that, which is always fun. But probably the best story she had was talking about her work as an agent for other actors and actresses, both in the general about how that worked and what it's like as a career. But particularly, she told the story of discovering Matt Smith when he was in his first just amateur junior play oh, wow. that she went along to see and said, that that guy's got something. I want to, I'm going to want, I want to... Um, I want to represent that guy and sign him on and got him his first job and, and all the rest of that. So that, that was a really good story. Her daughter, Charlie Hayes, was there who has done a lot of voiceover work and w- w- was really good. There were, there were times when she could sort of see, hey, I've got something to contribute to this story or there was a question for her. And there are other times when she's like, no, no these people are here for my mum. I'm, you know, I'm not here to be the sort of attention I'll vacate the stage until there's you know, something else for me to say. So really, yeah. really professional. But but again, just hearing her talk about the work she's done and how it all works and how um, ADR works now it w- w- was really good. But the final comment I'll make about the whole thing is, more than anything, Wendy's absolute love for her time on the show, but particularly for Patrick Troughton, was just so, so evident. And I mean, Patrick's been dead for, what, 35 nearly 40 years now. Yeah. And she still talks about him with just genuine love and friendship. And and you can feel that. You can't fake that. You can really feel that she just has so much affection for, for, for Patrick Trout and, and for his family and for Fraser and, and the others on the team. So it was just a really nice event and she was a really good guest. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you got to see her. Yeah. So Phil from Sirens of Audio did say at least one more guest that has been confirmed, but that is his news to announce, so I won't say it, but they are continuing with these events, and look, when we have official announcements, we'll absolutely plug them. 
Uh, and in fact, I do understand, Rob, that there were some people at the Sydney event, at least, who did say we came because the Doctor Who show told us it was worth coming. So if huh. you're out there listening, um, that's really great to hear. And I really hope that you enjoyed the event. And I hope that others go along to other events in the future. That's really marvellous to hear. Fantastic. What have you been up to, Rob? Dave, I've tweeted about this in the past, uh, both before they came out and subsequent to them arriving on my doorstep. I am, of course, talking about two DVD documentaries, one about the Virgin books covering the NAs and MAs, and one about the BBC books of the Eighth Doctor range and the PDAs. Basically, the backstory to these docos was there was a Hoover's event, that's Hoover's with a W, in the UK in May of last year, where they had a bunch of Virgin and BBC writers meeting the fans. So Real Time grabbed a bunch of them for interviews and constructed these two documentaries. Now, the good, it's very rare to see some of these authors interviewed at all. It's very rare to see a photo of them at all, you know, a contemporary one at least. So to have little documentaries where they're talking intercut with each other and basically telling the story of their respective ranges, whether the Virgin range or the BBC range of books, that's just really good stuff. Sounds good. Yeah, but I'd be a poor reviewer if I didn't mention my beef with these DVDs. And I feel really rotten saying this because I've said many times that I think Real Time and Keith Barnfather, who runs it all, are... some of the most important things to happen to Doctor Who fandom, going right back to the 1980s. So, look, I say up front, I'm a fan of what these guys do. I think their work is invaluable, but here it comes. These two docos are only about 45 to 50 minutes apiece. I think they could have appeared on one disc together as, you know, the story of Doctor Who publishing in the wilderness years and made for a really great single release because... Keep in mind, these are £13 a disc, and if you live down here, it's £7 postage. So we're talking close to 40 bucks. Yeah, easy. For one of them. Close to 80 bucks for the two. You know, I paid it. I enjoy the content. I repeat how much I appreciate the real-time guys. But I couldn't help but feel it was double-dipping a little. And that's a business decision. I get it. But I felt a little taken for a ride there, and I can't say plainer than that. No, fair enough. I'll certainly be interested to check those out, so I will have to uh, see if I can track down a copy somewhere. Absolutely. Uh, Rob, I was away on holiday for a bit over January. I was in mm-hmm. uh, Japan and the Philippines. The, the first at your suggestion, I have to say. A long ago suggestion. I'm glad you finally did it. <laughs> yeah, no, you've been pushing me to put Japan on the uh, to-visit list for a while. So yes. I did finally get there. And look, as always, when I travel overseas, I go back and reread some of the Virgin books because... It's fun to reread them. It's a great thing to do on holiday. And because they fit nicely into a pocket when you're on a plane in a Mm. way that a great big hardback doesn't. So that was great. And I actually knocked over three of them in the two weeks I was away. Oh, wow. Uh, I read Gareth Roberts' Missing Adventure, The Plotters, first off. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely tore through that book. For those who aren't aware, it is a... Hartnell, Vicky, Ian and Barbara novel set at the time of the gunpowder plot in London. And it is exactly what you would expect from a Hartnell historical. The Doctor and Vicky get caught up in the court of King James. They meet King James and uh, Cecil and all all the sort of characters you would expect whilst Ian and Barbara get sort of lost in the crowd and go off to their own subplots and meet Guy Fawkes and then it all sort of comes together in in the way that you would expect. And it's just Mm. such an entertaining read, but also one that really does capture the spirit of the Hartnell historical. So that was fantastic. Uh, I read The New Adventure 
Birthright by Nigel Robinson. And again, I smashed through that, I think, in sort of a day and a half because a lot of it was on a plane, but I sort of got to the hotel, had dinner, was a bit tired. I thought, I'm going to finish this book because yeah. I was really enjoying it. It it goes a little bit astray towards the end, but it is just another really engaging and interesting book. Mm-hmm. And having read the book, I then did listen to the Big Finish Adaption's probably too strong a word because they used the concept of the book to do a plot for the Bernice Summerfield range that they oh. did. So it wasn't quite an adaption, but um, that was interesting to compare the book to the audio. And I also listened to the adaption of uh, Walking to Babylon as well, which is part of that range. I will do Just War when I get a chance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I also reread the new adventure Blood Heat by mm-hmm. Jim Mortimer, which has always been in that sort of top five, top ten. And rereading it absolutely reinforced why that was the case. This is one of those books where I can remember some of the scenes and some of the passages as though I'd watched them on television. And they were really, really sitting deep, deep in the memory. They were really great pieces of writing. But you go back and you reread it and all those things are there and all those great moments are there. But there's all this stuff that you've forgotten or subplots you don't remember. I was surprised at how quickly the Doctor gets involved with the Silurians, for example. I thought, oh, that I had that memory of that happening really, really late. And actually, no, it happens really early. But again, these were just three page turners. They're fantastic books. And I really enjoyed reading them again. Well, the memory cheats, as JNT used to say. It does a little bit. And um, yeah. and, and what, what I'm sort of interested in perhaps doing a bit more this year is reading some of the books that I didn't hate, but perhaps didn't rate because I was 12 or 13 or 14 reading them. I just thought this this just doesn't, you know, it doesn't resonate with me. Or a, a couple, like, for example, I want to go back and read Lucifer Rising, which I remember as being a really good book with some great ideas, but it was so densely written that it was almost like as a 12 or 13 year old the words were almost sort of just bouncing off the eyeballs because I couldn't right. I couldn't really take them in it just, just was too high highly written for a young young lad so maybe trying a few of them and seeing how they read again as a um older lad well you know I've got the set here Dave and I haven't read a lot of them so maybe if you uh tell me which one you're going to read I'll read it too and we could turn it into a show Oh, interesting. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. We've got a lot to do this year. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Uh, Look, we're being very bookish this month because my final piece for short topics, it's a quick one from me. I've started reading the NSAs in order and my plan is to power through them and hopefully have them all read by the end of this calendar year, at which point I think I'll just throw them up on eBay for 10 bucks a pop and just clear them out. It's something I've always wanted to do. Not sell them, that is, but actually read them. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd already read odd ones here or there. And in the case of Capaldi, I've actually read all of the Capaldi ones, for example. But I'll I'll reread them on this run through. I'll do them start to finish. So, yeah, I've blazed through the first six books, which are all Eccleston ones earlier in January. I'm now into the Tenant era. And uh, I'm recording my thoughts on them as I go on my policebox.net website. And look, Overall, Dave, I'll just say there are some gems here and there. There really are uh, some really fun stories. And there are some real turkeys. Most of them feel like you're watching a TV episode. So they're quite different to the NAs, MAs, EDAs, PDAs in that respect, which, of course, tried to be bigger and brighter and proper novels, in quotation marks. But I don't mind that. It makes them quite an easy read. And some of the storylines, as I say, are really quite okay. Yeah, it's basically a set of books I collected a long time ago and I haven't read them, so that's being addressed now. 
Yeah, it's really interesting you made that last point there, Rob, because I was thinking as you were talking that one of the big things about the Virgin range was that we don't have a budget, guys, so we can do all these things we would never do on television. You want a Silurian riding a dinosaur? Here it is. Whereas these ones, well, you who has money, so there perhaps isn't that opportunity to be quite uh, broader and deeper, as you as they may say. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one I'm reading at the moment, I'm I'm just thinking in my head, what, what sets would you need? You'd need the, uh, the Powell Estate where Rose lives. You'd need uh, Down by the Thames. You'd need an office building and you'd need a generic sort of uh, open space where some experiments could happen. I'll try not to be spoilerific. But that's all you'd need. And you could actually film this <laughs> as, a, as a proper story. Yeah, no, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, Dave, shall we move on to our main topic? Yes, we should. We should, because I've got lots to say. Very good. Well, as I said at the start of the episode, you good folks out there voted for Series 10 of Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi's final series, and I don't think either of us were um, too put out by having to do this, Dave. No, it's interesting. I was obviously sitting around the table here at my place when Mark said, I nominate Series 10, and my initial thought was, oh, come on, Mark. It was only a couple of years ago. We just did a hot take on those ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, then it sunk in very, very slowly mm. that that was seven years ago. Yes, it and, was. And it is absolutely time to go back and do a proper rewatch of that series. So, uh, no, thank you, thank you, Mark. I, I was a bit surprised at just how long ago Capaldi was because he's only one Doctor ago. Yeah. He's only yeah, one year essentially. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, one of our listeners tweeted us recently that they were uh, listening to those season 10 shows that you're referring to. And I said, oh, well, that's very interesting. But as I said to them, it's not something I was going to do and potentially get influenced by in this episode, even from a scoring point of view. So aside from a few episodes tonight that I have rewatched over the years, I mean, hello, world enough in time, <laughs> most of these views are the first time I've watched the episodes since they went out back in 2017 and we recorded those episodes. Basically, I would have watched them once, sometimes twice on the day of release, and that was due to my wife also watching them at the time. But this is the era where she sort of dropped out of Doctor Who, so I didn't even watch all of these twice. Uh, I know that for sure. This is going to be a completely fresh set of reviews for me here, what we're doing tonight. No, absolutely. I certainly haven't gone back and listened to what we said. There are occasions, though, where I was trying to frame a thought or, or put a point down in my head to talk about it. And I suddenly thought, I think I said that last time, too. Um, <laughs> but there's other times where stuff is completely almost new and fresh. And um, there are some that were better than I expected and some that were not as good as I expected. Well, shall we rip into them? We shall. Who do you want us to kick off, Rob? I'll take lead, Dave. Sure. Uh, with the pilot. This seemed very clever to me when I rewatched it, even though I could see all the gears and the cogs moving behind the scenes. It, it introduces Bill, of course, in a way that's really relatable and very human. I could imagine, I, I thought this while I was watching, I could imagine showing this to a non-Doctor Who person, say my work bestie, and imagine her just laughing at a lot of Bill's lines and saying, I'd say that, because Bill feels very natural. She feels very real. Of course, it also introduces the Heather character who's going to swing back at the end of the season to save Bill. And although the monster of the piece is a puddle of space oil who isn't actually evil doing anything particularly interesting except following the directions of Heather's last thought, it does engineer scenarios where Bill 
can go in the TARDIS and have a short trip. She can go back into the TARDIS and have a trip to Australia. She can go back into the TARDIS and have another trip around the world. Then go back into the TARDIS and end up in the dalek Movellan War. And in the space of 10, 15 minutes in this episode, Dave, Bill has had the companion experiences that might take three or four episodes for another companion to have. And I thought, that's bloody clever. Good on you, Moffat. Capaldi's also on song. The whole thing's fun. And it was probably about an eight out of 10 for me on this rewatch. I put this on with a little bit of trepidation because, as I said, it does feel like we've been here fairly recently, even though the memory cheats <laughs> and we actually hadn't. And there's also that sense of, okay, February's an incredibly short month. I've just realised I've got about 12 days to watch the entire 10 episodes, <laughs> of, or 12 episodes, I should say, of this, this series. So there was a little yeah. bit of like, okay, this is going to be, oh, maybe this is going to be a bit of a slog. Okay. I... I'm so happy I'm a Doctor Who fan, Rob, because within five minutes of starting this, yeah. I was just grinning from ear to ear and yeah. having an absolute whale of a time. And a big reason for that, and I'm going to be coming back to this, I suspect, quite a bit over the next 45 minutes or so, is Peter Capaldi. The way that he was interacting with Bill, the way that he was doing the lectures, the way that he was setting things up, he was just so fun to watch. He's such a good actor. He's he's an incredible doctor. He's an incredible doctor. And that first five minutes, I was just going, this is awesome. I love watching Peter Capaldi and I love watching Bill Potts. I'm so glad that I'm doing that again. Mm. Most of that enthusiasm continued for the episode. I I did think it was too long. It's back in those days where they felt they had to have a big, extra long season opener. Like, this doesn't need to be now. This could be 40 minutes. Mm. And, and some of it was a little bit too long um but i thought the mystery works well the way they explain what's happening works well uh, the, the dark Marvellan war that they sort of pop into is a really cool idea I, interestingly watching it for the second time it wasn't nearly that oh my god what's going oh my god it's a Marvellans. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that sort of thing that we had the first time when you know it's coming like oh yeah that's cool there's Marvellans. but but look, it was enjoyable a little bit long a little bit simple but a really good opener i agree rob it's something that a non- Doctor Who fan could watch and go, yeah, this is kind of fun, this is kind of cool, and get a lot out of it. I gave it a B plus. Nice. Why don't you keep us going with Smile? So I remember Smile as being really good, and I, I, I've spent a lot of the last seven years, I feel, talking up Smile because a lot of fans don't think a lot of it. Hmm. And I'm standing by that take. I watched the opening of this, and my first thought was, I don't remember getting into the murdering and the slaughter like seconds into it. This is, wow, okay, this is not what I remember. I thought the Doctor discovered it all slowly, but no, no, it's set up like these robots are slaughtering people. Okay. Yeah. And and from there, it's really good. It's It looks beautiful. Some of the acting's not the best. Um, some of the plot isn't that great, but, but there's a real sense of adventure and excitement and a, and a bit of, bit of chilling stuff in there the mm. bones that they find what's happened to people that and they like to talk about grief i think the robot design is good and it, it, it is creepy when they turn uh well not evil but so to speak um mm. but definitely we have got two in a row of it's not evil just misunderstood and watching them back to back that did stand out not quite as good as the pilot i'm going a b Okay, my take on Smile is that this one surprised me. As I remembered the key bits, 
that there were emoji bots and you have to smile or be killed. And I knew it was filmed at a really cool looking building. I think it's in Spain. So the production looked really good. I remembered all of that. But how they got out of specific scrapes or how out of nowhere it turns into an indigenous peoples and paying rent for coming to their land allegory mm, in the yeah, last yeah. few minutes of the piece. I'd completely forgotten all of that. Me too. Absolutely me too. And look, I think broadly it holds up and there's that feeling of weirdness and tension. I think you're, you've touched on it there and it feels quite sci-fi and I really like that. I think it falls down a little when the colonists start appearing and we're worried about the young boy. And of course, there's a young boy. And the leader of the colonists turns out to be a dick. Yes. Of course, he turns out to be a dick, you know. Yeah. And, and things get chaotic in general. And suddenly we have a bunch more people in the mix in the middle of the chaos. I wouldn't say it bombs the landing, but it just felt slightly off to me the longer it went on. And like you, I don't think it's as good as the pilot but it's not bad and i went with a seven out of ten yeah i, I was thinking if this was a sci-fi novel this would be awesome yeah and, and, it, and it still looks great on television but but you're right some of the some of the need to have actors and performances doesn't quite land as well as it might have if this was a novel but the concept's great no yeah yeah a good, a good episode mm. i'll keep us going with thin ice i had memories of this one being a bit boring but I put it on with a genuinely open mind. I mean, it's been seven years and it doesn't completely fall over. I mean, it does wear its agenda on its sleeve a bit at times. And it's even misleading as it tries to hammer home its topics, which was a bit distracting to me. For example, Bill becomes quite fearful that it's 1814 and she's black and quotation marks, slavery is still a thing, which the doctor confirms. What's not said, however, is that slavery never had any legal basis in England at all, and the slave trade itself had been abolished seven years earlier in the UK. So a line from the doctor along the lines of, yes, it's, it's sadly a thing out there in the big wide world, but you're safe here, I think would have made more sense than letting Bill be fearful for herself in the middle of London in 1814. And I do think viewers could be very misled here if they don't know the history going on behind all this similarly the villain of the piece Sutcliffe is painted into such a panto villain corner he comes across as less a realistic person and more what a 21st century writer needs their punching bag to look like so overall it's a basic runaround I did have issues with the agenda in places and the way it was presented probably the way it's presented more than anything and I don't think it's anything too special I gave this a six I've given Thin Ice a B as well, so the same as Smile. Okay. But what's interesting is that whilst I remembered most of the main plot, you know, there's a sea creature under the ice and there's a cipher of a bad dude who's doing bad dude stuff with it and he's a capitalist, so... And <laughs> all, yeah. all of that. So I can't remember that. And, and, and that was the weakest stuff of the episode. But what I'd completely forgotten is all of the stuff that goes in between that. And there's all the stuff, all the different plot lines with the kids, with other people that they meet. There's the stuff where that urchin is just dragged under the ice and killed in about five minutes. I've got, I forgot that. That's a bit. Oh my goodness. Well, that, that was. That's what he gets for stealing the Sonic Dave. Well, that's well, yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> you know, so you know, Oliver Twist was sort of killed in the first five minutes, which was yep. interesting. But then all that, all that stuff that fitting in between the cliched villain. I thought was the highlight of the episode. I thought it was really well done. It gave Capaldi a chance 
to shine as well and to do that thing that Capaldi does really well with kids. He's just really good with kids, mm. uh, both in real life and and as an actor and as a doctor. And I thought that was what held this episode up for me. The cliched stuff, if that was alone, this would have dropped down. But but with all the other good stuff and the character and the Capaldi and, and indeed um, Pearl Mackey's performance, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sticking to a B. Okay, very good. Keep us going with Knock Knock. So... I have also spent the last seven years, I feel, defending Knock Knock as a really good story against a fandom that's not quite as in love with it as I was. Oh, really? And uh, I, I, I might have been a little bit wrong, Rob. It's, um, it's okay. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, again, the Doctor and Bill are by far the best stuff in this, and my favourite scenes were the stuff with the Doctor hanging around with the kids and him just being, you know, that that, that really cool grandpa that they're like, actually, no, this dude's kind of fun. Let's let's hang with him and him sort of having fun. And, and I, I love that knowing sort of alienness of the 12th Doctor compared to the 11th Doctor. I don't know what football is. Oh, what's a girl? Ooh. Like, I've, I so much enjoyed mm. the knowing alienness of Capaldi than I do the just twattiness of smith um so i love i love that sort of stuff in there i didn't think the plot was up to much and so it was weaker than i remembered the resolution wasn't particularly great i will say though and it's important to note this i suspect that i'm going to be more down on this now than i was during a hot take because in our hot take i would have watched four the first four episodes over four weeks in this case, I've watched four episodes over probably three, maybe four days. Mm. And so the fourth iteration of it's not really evil, just misunderstood, um, whether that's the fish or the robots or the puddle or now the earwigs, mm-hmm. the fourth iteration of that, I was just like, oh, come on, give us something nasty, give us something bad. Some misunderstood witchy grubs is not exciting. <laughs> so, um, look, I, there was a lot to enjoy. Capaldi carried it. But it is one that has dropped a bit in my memory. I've gone down to a B minus. This is really interesting, Dave. Uh, okay. <laughs> because in my memory, this is the one where I liked the setup, but I felt it failed the landing. But on rewatch, I liked about 99% of this, Dave. Okay. <laughs> Even when we got to the wooden woman and all of that at the end, I was invested. I bought into it. I liked it, frankly. But you know what still got me? You know what that 1% was? Go on. The happy everyone lives style ending. And I'm sorry if you've been filleted at a cellular level and fed as energy to a wooden woman, <laughs> you aren't coming back. <laughs> Let's just say that. I, I get that that makes for a messy time for Bill if all her uni mates suddenly go missing and she doesn't. But that's life, you know. We've had a horrific time. Horrific things happened. Let's have that stick. So that's my only real gripe with this. I was enjoying it otherwise. I think David Suchet is fabulous in this. I think, again, like you say, the Doctor hanging out with the kids is brilliant. It was the first episode in this series where I felt on this rewatch I was having a reasonably different reaction to what my memory was. And for that alone, I was glad we were doing the rewatch. My sense is that this wasn't particularly liked by fandom i don't know if i'm just catching up or or where i'm at but i i'm giving this an eight out of ten dave no that's very cool i'm I'm glad you've enjoyed it more and 
even if I've enjoyed it less. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the wooden woman because I've got to say, look, we don't watch Doctor <laughs> Who for the effects, but when she came on screen, there was just a. I just sat there. I think I said out loud, "Oh come on, mm. that looks terrible." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shall I continue on with oxygen? Yeah, go for it. This one, Dave, I don't think is a million miles away from Smile in some ways. We we have a really good, dark sci-fi tale going on. There's lots of people being bumped off by technology and things look really bleak for our heroes. It's ticking all the boxes to be a very good story. And then at the last minute, it shoehorns in this message that doesn't feel quite natural. Sure, it's more natural than Smile, where out of left field some nanobots gain sentience and are declared the indigenous race of the planet, even though they aren't from the planet. But only just. Uh, we get the feeling throughout the episode that the corporation are bastards. But to go this extra leap, that if you don't work hard enough, even for a short period of time, that they'll actually kill you, it just doesn't scan for me. It makes that big, as you would say, undergraduate point of corporations. They're out to get you and all of that. But in universe, how would this be explained? Because presumably it would happen a lot. You know, people bunk off work from time to time. They get killed. Wouldn't this company have a reputation for loads of dead employees? Is it even cost effective to keep retraining new people? So a really good story, but I felt it fell down a bit at the end and it dropped it down because initially I was thinking, oh, this is going to be quite high. It dropped it down to an 8 out of 10 for me. Otherwise, I really liked it. This is, I think, comfortably the episode of this series that went down the furthest for me on this watch. I actually got very little out of this at all. I get the feeling that they said, right, we've got a really cool scene where there was a spacewalk, and yep, that scene was very cool. And they said, oh, we've got this really cool twist at the end where it's the corporation all the time. And <laughs> and the, the other 37 minutes was just mm. nothing, just yeah. absolutely nothing. It, it really felt like they had a punchline and then just tried to write an episode to get there via a cool spacewalk. And I didn't get anything out of this much at all look it looks good i guess there's an okay sci-fi idea in there with the you know we we have a certain number of breaths so we get an oxygen ration or whatever it is but uh, mostly i just sort of thought it was an idea looking for a plot and it didn't find a plot and so i was left there with a c yeah i i guess for me it ties into some of the warhammer 40k sort of horror tinged stuff creeping around a spaceship with sort of space zombies coming after you. It could quite appeal to me visually, especially. But uh, anyway, we should move on. Extremist, Dave. So I'm going to talk about extremists and also riff a little bit on the pyramid at the end of the world. Okay. Because the big takeaway I got from both of those episodes was that they are better than I remembered, but they both are insubstantial. But mm-hmm. I thought they both had a really cool sci-fi idea at their premise. And I thought if this had been one episode where you've got the cool idea of each competing with it, with each other, that would work really, really well. I think these would be judged much better. They just lack enough for a two-parter. Never mind a three-parter. I'll deal separately with The Lie of the Land. Extremists particularly... Um, I really hated this when it came out. And actually, I didn't review these three episodes on the hot take. I was in America at that time, desperately trying to watch them on sort of <laughs> seven years ago Wi-Fi in America, which wasn't great. Right. Um, so I didn't remember to do the hot takes on these at the time. I didn't like Extremists at the time, but 
Again, I've watched it this time. I think the ideas are really good. There's some good performance. I think you can lose all the nonsense with the Pope and this episode would lose nothing. I get that they need to sort of have the Vatican there to do the deep, dark secrets and, and Vatican sort of just says quickly, you know, deep, dark secret. So I get that, but all that mess around with the Pope and everything, cut that away, get this down to 25 minutes and then get into Pyramid as the back half would work really well. As I say, I really disliked this when I watched it seven years ago. I'm, I'm moving it up to a C plus, which is not great. It's not a great episode, but mm-hmm. it's a good middle of the road episode, not the stinker I expected. Alrighty then. For me, for the start of a three-parter, I felt this one oozed confidence back then. And I still think it lands now. It's funny. I think the premise of the Pope turning up is really funny. And I really enjoy that bit, particularly as they got such a a dead ringer for the Pope too. It's it's quite funny. Uh, And the idea that if you read the Veritas, you go mad and you kill yourself, that's quite spooky. And of course, all of this is being intercut with the Missy backstory of how she ended up in the vault, which is something that, you know, we haven't been talking about, oh, the vault is in all these earlier episodes, who's in the vault, what's happening. Her execution or what's going to be her execution, and the lines that are going to come back at the end of the series, you know, without hope, without witness, without reward. They just seem like cool lines in this episode, but they have a deeper meaning when we get to the end of the series. I I was noticing all of that, obviously, on the second time around, because I've obviously seen the end of the series now. We have confirmation that River Song is finally dead at this point in Capaldi's timeline. And then the revelation that it's all a simulation, and even as a simulation, the Doctor's a brave, daring kind of guy. It's maybe not a punch-the-air kind of moment, but it's a quiet, yeah, that's who the Doctor is, even as a simulation. Even when he's not real, he's he's doing some good work. So throw on top the design of the monks themselves, and I was watching this thinking, are the next two episodes really as bad as I thought? Because this was, this was quite all right. I, I throw a 7 out of 10 at it. Yeah, I will say that the scenes of Nardole and Bill particularly discovering that they're not real are really, really good and some of the best work both of those actors and actresses did mm. in the season. That, that was some really good stuff. I, I agree, there's some cool stuff in there. I just didn't think there was 45 minutes of cool stuff in there. Fair enough. I'll continue with Pyramid at the end of the world and say I was a bit struck dumb by this episode, similar to watching Knock Knock. I was like, yes, yes, okay, uh, yes, that's fine. <laughs> and... It wasn't jumping out as some egregious, oh my God, Doctor Who's just fallen off a cliff in quality, which is what my mind has built it up to be since 2017. Sure, there are bits that are dumb. The whole Doctor as president of the world thing, it's just stupid. You can pull off this exact story in exactly the same way without him having that role. So I just find it dumb. And the military people who are making all the decisions, not just for their countries, but the entire planet, seemingly without even checking in with their governments. Who are these people? I mean, the Russian bloke in particular is just out there in the middle of nowhere with a tent (laughs) when they pick him up. Yet he's the most important Russian decision maker. I mean, what? Meanwhile, the whole virus plot post-COVID hits in a way I wouldn't have felt at all back in 2017. That felt a bit extraordinary. I have no idea what the monks actually want, though, when I'm watching this, but this episode did land better than I thought, and I'd give it a 6 out of 10. So I stepped down from the previous episode, but a 6. Yeah, I thought this was a step up from the previous episode. (laughs) So uh, we're diverging there again. I think this is a really good example where things that would have absolutely annoyed me and taken me out of the story 
on the first watch, I can kind of set aside on the second watch. So all the stuff you noted about the president of Earth and who are these generals making these decisions? You watch it the first time, you go, what's going on here? That's nonsense. That's just picky. And suddenly yeah, you're yeah. annoyed and you're sort of taking out of the episode. Whereas now that I can sort of go, look, that's just Moffat's geopolitics. He's hopeless at that. Move, move along. Um, <laughs> I can kind of put that aside and just go, that's just Moffat. And enjoy the plot for what it was. And I actually think the plot here was pretty good. I, I again think that there wasn't 45 minutes. And as I said, I think this would work better if Ethan Extremist were merged into sort of one 50-minute episode. I've forgotten how much we see of the monks in this, and they're really, really good. They're really, really creepy. At this stage, them having no known agenda or reason or rationale works because we're still wondering what's going on, and there's still a mystery. Bill's desperation is really good, but the gas virus plot, whatever you want to call that, I was really taken in by that this time. I thought that was really, really strong. Mm. And that helped to keep this episode together. So if I called Extremist a C plus, I'm calling Pyramid at the End of the World a B. Wow. Well, why don't you take us on home with the uh, the third part? The Lie of the Land. I can remember watching this in a hotel room in New York City. Yeah. And being not particularly taken with it. And I've watched it this time and no, it's not good. Right, yeah. I have said that the first two Monk Trilogy episodes were better than I remembered, particularly Pyramid. This is bad. This is just not good. It doesn't work. The plot just makes no sense. The Doctor is a complete dick for no reason other than, hey, wouldn't it be funny for the Doctor to be a bit of a dick? (laughs) Bill sort of gets to wander around not really having anything to do. I I think that Bill really sort of lacks an important role in the plot up until the last minute when she just gets Mm, to be the deus ex machina. And the whole thing about the conquered Earth, the opening's good. The, the thing about the Doctor convincing us that the monks have been here since we first got out of the slime, I was going, oh, that's a really cool concept. Maybe this one's going to be better than I thought it was. No. No, it just goes <laughs> off a cliff after the first five minutes. I don't know what the monks want. I don't know why we care about the monks. Okay, they seem to be sort of bastards, but but why? You know, mm-hmm. all, all it needed was a few lines about they are intergalactic leeches who suck the life force of others. So every time a human sent to the gulag, they're secretly turned into monk food. I don't know, something. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, their planets died, so they need a new one. Or they just move from planet to, you know, they're like, they're not, I don't care. But give us something. So I thought this was a bit of a hot mess from start to finish. I'm giving it a D plus. Yeah, very fair. As expected, this one was a step down again from the other two for me. It still wasn't quite as egregious as I'd built it up to be since 2017. I will say that much. And there were moments playing out where I was fine with it. But there's also elements in it like the monks make you live like it's Soviet Russia in blue boiler suits. Why? (laughs) <laughs> that's one of my notes. Yeah, because that's what fascists do, Rob. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Uh, some people seem to remember the monks aren't the real deal. What causes that? Never explained. Everyone seems to be brainwashed except certain people. Why? Yeah, and there's know. a really cool idea that they could have run with there. Yeah. And look, what happened to the monk who was on the ship with the Doctor? It's revealed that the Doctor's been you know, playing a game all along. There was a monk on that ship. Where, where's he gone? Why does the Doctor crash the ship into England laughing like an idiot? Especially when we know some of those dock workers, like the ones who helped Bill and Nardole get onto the ship in the first place, they're good guys. They know monks aren't the real deal. Why are we crashing a ship into where they work? I'm still not clear what the monks want either, Dave. And most annoying of all, I think it has a really rushed ending. The monks are just built up in the past two episodes, but are hardly in this episode. They hardly do anything. 
and then they just run off. It's a real what's all that about episode, <laughs> you know, which I think fans of The Late Show will recognise. And as a conclusion to a three-parter, a three-parter, it's really unforgivable on some levels for that. So for a score, I can't give it any more than a five out of ten. And even that feels generous. It's funny, Rob, as you were speaking about that, I was reminded of the new episode of The Grand Tour, which dropped a few days ago, Sad Job. Through that, there's a running joke from um, Clarkson Main Hammonds that uh, Mr. Woman, the producer, would quite like it if we could find a way for the tanker to accidentally blow up. Oh, why? Because <laughs> it'll look good in the trailer. Um, <laughs> and as you were describing all those things, I thought, why does the ship run into the in, into England? Why is the Doctor laughing? Why does the Doctor regenerate? I just thought, because it looks good in the trailer. I've got no yeah. other explanation. And that's just really crap. <laughs> it's yes. just really crap. It, it is, and in a season that we're, we're really enjoying, this was just bad. Agree. Completely agree. <laughs> Empress of Mars, another episode where I thought my feelings were previously quite mixed, and pretty much that was the case when I rewatched it. The premise of this is interesting to me, Dave, as the idea of Victorians in space was the basis for the Space 1889 role-playing game back in the late 80s and the early 90s that I played, I loved, and I also had the video game version of, so anyone thinking, gosh, what an original idea this was. No, 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 no. People have been putting Victorians in space for decades, even in just the modern sense, let alone if we think back to the 1860s and Jules Verne firing people off into space and things like this. So the premise I could live with easily, it's been well done in fiction, but while the God's Acre deserter plot is really well done and I think that actor really sells it the catch love plot just seems too moustache twirling villain it doesn't ring true for me at all and sidelining Nardol is done in a very cheap way we don't even get an explanation for why the TARDIS leaves except off screen we know that Gatiss mustn't have wanted to, to have Matt Lucas in the mix so he just sort of writes him out of it gives him a scene with Missy and that's about it Alpha Centauri appearing at the end is a nice touch, but overall it doesn't fire properly. And that's frustrating because I think it's a case of some interesting ingredients, but they're just not mixed together well. So I can't go past six out of 10 for this. Yeah, we watched this for our Mark Gatiss episode last year. Mm. And I commented at the time that it was one of my favorite Gatiss episodes. And I think watching it again in the context of series 10 rather than a run of Gattis episodes it goes up even more I think this is the one that gets the series back to a really strong position we had a lot of really good episodes at the opening the Monk trilogy better than I remembered apart from the last one mm. but but you know it's a dip in the middle and now I thought we're back to just a good solid adventure it's got a good premise it's got a decent plot it's got cool ice warriors it's got the ice warrior queen thing it's got Alpha Centauri it's got Gun battles, it's got the Doctor lecturing people. It's it's what I want in Doctor Who. It's a good, solid Doctor Who story. It's a straightforward B for me. Um, not a classic, easily watchable, a good adventure in space and time. Yeah, fair enough. And as you were talking then, I was thinking, have I been too harsh? Could I have given it a seven instead? Mm, maybe it was a seven, but I said six. And before we go on to the next episode, Rob, I think this is a good point to just talk a little bit about Missy and Nardol, mm-hmm. because... Again, my take was a bit different watching this compared to seven years ago. Because seven years ago, we were, of course, doing the whole, what's in the vault? Who's in the vault? Is it Missy? What's going on? Why is it? Et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of got that teasing out of it. Whereas here, you know that she's in the vault. And I do think it works better knowing that from the start and sort of seeing 
the way the Doctor reacts, seeing the way Nardole reacts. And actually, I found that build-up with the vault was a lot better, knowing what was coming. I, I really enjoyed pe- watching that, knowing the final picture on the box of the puzzle, so to speak. So that was really good. And, and as I've said before, I enjoy Missy a lot more as she goes on. And, and certainly that was my case in the watch here. I'll talk more about that in a couple of episodes' time. Nardole, again, I was sitting there trying to put into words what I thought about Nardole after sort of episode three or four. And I think I found myself using exactly the phrase that I used in the hot take, which is that I get the feeling they've got Matt Lucas and gone, he's a funny guy and he's got a bit of a light comic relief character. Let's make sure we always give him funny lines. In the first half Mm. of the season, I did sort of have this, oh my God, that feels so forced. Yes, we know he's Matt Lucas. Yes, we know he's a comedian, but he doesn't have to be funny all the time. Stop Mm -hmm. trying. But watching the evolution of Nardole, and by this point going, actually, he's he's a real character now, I really enjoyed, and, and he came good by about halfway. Yeah, and was it one of the Monk episodes where he had to take Bill to task, and he actually turns very, very, very serious? Yes. Which then leads to her saying, Nardole, are you secretly a badass? Yes. <laughs> I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, oh yeah, I just wanted to uh, make a comment of that before we dive into the back end of the season. Well, take us into the Eaters of Light, Dave. Rob? Yes? I enjoyed this episode so much. I loved it last time. Everybody's been telling me I was wrong. It's not that great. For seven years, they've been telling me that. And I went in thinking, oh... It's going, to, it's going to be rose-tinted glasses, isn't it? I'm going to suddenly see what everyone else is seeing and realise it's not that. No, this is great. <laughs> Capaldi is great. Bill is great. The ideas are great. The location filming is great. The tone is great. The music's great. I love this episode so, so much. It was a joy mm. to watch. All the elements worked. No notes. It's an A from me. Wow. Okay. I knew this was an episode I liked at the time, but in my memory, fandom didn't think much of it. So that dovetails with what you're saying, if you've been having to defend it or being told you're wrong. Because I felt that fandom didn't think much of it. And over the years, I've commented, you know, I, I think it's a good one. And the responses have been muted to me as well. On rewatch, I was just as happy with it again as I remember being with it on broadcast. I think the setting, again, as you say, is really good in general. It also feels like a classic era story in some ways, like when Pat and his crews would like land in some field somewhere and march off to meet the locals. It feels like a Troughton story, and the whole Ninth Legion mystery is so flexible, it can be shoehorned in and not feel out of place. The Romans aren't stereotypical Romans either, which is a nice... Uh, twist would be the wrong word. It's a nice vibe, the way the Romans are portrayed. And I think this is a genuine step up from the week before. I I don't think it's some sort of hidden classic. I'm not going to give it an A, but it's solid for sure. And I don't know why it doesn't get more love than it does. It's great Doctor Who. I think you're agreeing with me here that it's the Doctor, Bill and Nardole having a fun adventure in a historical period. What's not to love? It's an 8 out of 10 for me. I, I have nothing else to say. I just really enjoyed it. Fair enough. I'll take us through to World Enough and Time. And gosh, wasn't this a world changer? It was a world changer then, and it's a world changer now when I rewatch it. And this, as I said at the start, I have rewatched several times over the years, so it's I've seen this a, a fair bit. 
There's a bit of silliness at the start, I'll agree, with Missy playing very low and loose with the name Doctor Who, which felt a bit cringe at the time, and I can watch it and accept it now. It doesn't push all the wrong buttons, which I think was Moffat's intent. I think he's a troll par excellence. <laughs> you know, he knows exactly what will piss off fans, and he seems to delight in doing it from time to time. But now I rewatch it, I think, yeah, meh, whatever. So in the end, you don't win with this stuff, Stephen, but... moving on I mean wow anyone who's a fan of spare parts will recognize this kind of setting Bill getting a hole blown through her chest is no joke and we see the cyber hospital and all of that it's so grim it's so dark I said at the time I remember this vividly saying at the time it reminded me of World War One hospitals where guys would have just the most horrid injuries like they've lost half their face but they'd still be alive and oh god This is really great, Doctor Who. I don't think I've met anyone who's ever been down on this episode, which for a show like Doctor Who is very, very rare. There are always contrarians. A solid 9 out of 10 here. I also went into this one remembering it as being very good. I I think I gave it a 10 out of 10 when we did our hot take review. And again, a little bit worried that maybe it wouldn't be quite as good on the second watch. But my God, is it good. It Mm. absolutely just hooked me in from the start I agree, yes, Moffat is being a little bit trolly there. And I agree with you, as, as I said about um, some of his antics a couple of episodes ago. You sort of go, yeah, okay, Moffat, yeah, we get it. You're being a bit of a troll. Move aside. And and you can just yeah. put that aside so much more easily now when you're looking back on it with um, the passing of time. So I, I didn't mind all that. I do think this is as good as Michelle Gomez gets these two episodes. I, I'm not a fan of Missy. I'm not a fan of her performance. It's a little bit too knowing and arch for me, but but in this two-parter, she gets it right for me, and I really love that. But from the moment Bill gets shot in the chest, you're absolutely hooked. Mm. You don't know what's going to happen next, and the Doctor doesn't know what's going to happen next, and you really feel that tension ratcheting up right from that moment. I'd forgotten all of those little asides that happened, all the little flashbacks to the conversations and what was going on and Bill saying, no, you can't trust Missy, don't do this, what if I die? And that is built up really, really well. You, you see Moffat's ability as a script writer to put together a non-linear plot like that and build up the tension is really, really good. This is, this is some of his, if not his best writing for the show, in my opinion. Mm. And it's just bleak. And it's depressing and it's scary and it's emotional. And even when you know, as we do watching it again, that Bill ends up being cyber converted, there's still a part of you going, no, I don't know. They're not going to do it. No, stop. Just really, really, you feel that moment. It's got one of the, if not the best cliffhangers in the whole new series the i waited for you as the tear comes out of the cyberman's eye that's just spectacular and capaldi capaldi playing a doctor who's scared and who's Mm -hmm. worried and who doesn't know what's happening next is just extraordinarily good and its premise it's got one of the best sci-fi ideas moffat's done with the ship coming out of the black hole and the time distillation effect it's it's so, so good. I'm giving it an A+. It was 10 out of 10 seven years ago. It's A-plus now. It's just extraordinary. Oh, that's that's big shoes to fill. Tell us what you think about the follow-up to it. I remember being a little bit, not disappointed with the follow-up, because I think it's really good, mm-hmm. but feeling at the time it didn't quite live up to expectations or to the setup. But 
No, this, I think, continues the vibe just as well. And I think last time, knowing this was a not-quite-a-regeneration story, I was kind of looking for the pieces and kind of working out where it was all going to go. And instead, just going to go, look, I know where this ends up, so I'm just going to enjoy the journey. I found that journey was fantastic. It it was better than I remember, and I remembered it being pretty good. Mm. John Sim and Michelle Gomez together are just extraordinarily good. I think it's John Sim's best performance in Doctor Who, and by some some mile, I think it's Matt Lucas's best performance in the series, and by some margin, Billy's absolutely extraordinarily good in her performance. But it feels like a proper end of season epic. I think it's the only one of Moffat's end of season epics that really feels like that for me. But but more than anything, I felt like this was one of those classic era regeneration stories where you just watch everything become too much for the Doctor Mm. and fall out of the Doctor's control. And the stuff where Capaldi's saying is the Doctor, I've got hours to live, I don't care. We're having this out and then we're saving everybody. I just thought that's so, so good. And he does it so well. I have some thoughts on the ending, but I'll I'll stop gushing, Rob, and let you have a few words. <laughs> well, in the modern era, Dave, it's been very common for the second part of a two-parter to not quite deliver or be tricksy and go off on a different tangent and never quite work out. And of course, some two-parters do work out. Human nature, family of blood remains a touchstone for many. So I don't pretend they don't always work out. This, however, is in the vein of the stories that go off in a different direction, and it still works. We have this pastoral green homestead on the range kind of vibe, which comes as such a a shock when the when the episode starts, because we've been in this dirty old town in the previous episode, you know, smokestacks and all that, and suddenly we're out in what looks like nature, the countryside. <laughs> yeah, and especially watching them back to back rather than a week apart. Exactly, exactly. But there is this sense of impending doom. The Cybermen are coming. You've got the two Masters. You you do have that speech with the Doctor having it out with the Master and Missy. You know, will they stand with the Doctor? And all the while, Bill is a classic Cyberman. Like, a companion has been properly cyber-converted, and it's not a misdirect. It really happened. It's all just amazing, Dave. And then through to that final showdown, the Doctor's stuffed, Bill's carrying him. I'm, I'm, this is terrible radio, Dave, but I've got my hands out in front of me like I'm carrying <laughs> carrying someone. <laughs> you know, Bill's carrying him. That, that imagery is amazing. The big save from the spaceship oil at the very end is a little annoying to me. And the gravitas of Bill dying is sort of stripped away as once again Moffat can't let one of his creations just die. It's a bit, wait a minute, didn't we let dead Clara fly off with Lady Me at the end of the previous series and now we're doing that again with these two women? Why? You know, why can't this be a bit different? But really, that's pretty much my only, only beef with the story. And it's not enough to get upset about. I think this is a genuine 10 out of 10 moment in Doctor Who. I bloody love it. I'm also giving it an A+. Last time, my mark was a little bit lower than well enough in time, but I think they're both back-to-back 
A pluses and, and falling eaters of light as an A. So the series is really ending on a high. But you mentioned the World War One hospital feeling of the first part of this. Yes. And the feeling of the doctor lying, dying, in effect, in a just devastated battlefield. Yeah. That is, again, just that World War One imagery. And we've spoken about it many times before, Rob, but it, it needs to be said again. The image of the doctor dying, everything's got just too big for him. He saved who he's can. You're still not quite sure he saved the day. You're not sure if we'll ever see Nardole again or if he'll get out of this alive. Bill has effectively died. And and just that moment of I'd, I'd wanted there to be stars, I'd hoped there'd be stars. That was just, you know, I'm not a guy who really gets kids in the feels that easily, but mm. that hit me in the feels. And that depth of feeling was enough to get me by the puddle coming and picking up Bill. I was sort of like, that's fine. I'm, I'm so invested in this that I can live with that this time. Yeah, it's just spectacular. Yeah. Again, the, the egregious part for me with the space puddle isn't that it showed up because, you know, we saw it back in the first episode. It is, it is genuinely set up. Yes. To, to be there and to be in love with Bill and following Bill around and all of that. It's just that we had done it the previous season and had a dead companion fly off with another woman. And it just felt like we were just retreading that same ground. That's that's what really got me about it. Yeah, and, and that is a very nice segue into sort of my overall thoughts. As long-time listeners will know, I'm not a particular fan of the Matt Smith era. In fact, I don't like it much at all. Hmm. And often that sort of means I get tainted with sort of being anti-Moffat, whereas I've said 50% of what he wrote for RTD I think is fantastic. A number of episodes he wrote as his own showrunner are very good. I haven't really sort of liked the, what I find, frankly, smug, pretentious, sort of over-complicated arcs that just don't land. And watching this series, particularly the finale, I realised that when you like Moffat's characters and you're invested in Moffat's characters... His writing is incredibly impactful. Now, I don't particularly like Amy and I can't stand Clara and I don't like the 11th Doctor. Mm. So where others might watch them and go, I felt, you know, I kicked in the fields when they left. I was like, you know, I don't care. But but because I do love Capaldi and the 12th Doctor, because I do love Pearl Mackey as Bill Potts and because I've really enjoyed this series and even come to like Nardole and come to like Missy over the course of this series, who would have thought that would happen? Mm. Suddenly I'm going, I get it now. I get what all these Moffat fans are talking about every series. It's now landed for me because I love these characters so, so much. And I think that, as we all know, this is the year that Moffat didn't want to do. He kind of had to do it to bridge the gap between him and Chibnall. And him just going, let's just write some episodes, get some writers in, write some episodes, and then write a big finale, is the best of Moffat. I think it lacks pretentiousness. It lacks fan wankery. Mm -hmm. And it's just fun. As I said, I was a very happy Doctor Who fan watching this series and going, I'm glad I watched this show. This is a good show. This is absolutely one of the best seasons of the new series for me. Absolutely top couple. Mm -hmm. And well enough in time, The Doctor Falls is incredible. And I don't think we can wax enough about how good it seems we both found that. Yeah, well, I've long felt that this is Capaldi's best season both from a story point of view and the way he's actually playing the Doctor. He's still cranky. He can still get mad with people. But there's a more fun angle to him as well. It's like they finally got the mix right. And maybe that was the plan all along. And maybe Moffat's patting himself on the back that he's taken the Doctor from A to B. 
and we've seen growth in the character and I just think nah bollocks to all that you should have had him start off like this you know unless a doctor is going to do a tom and hang around for seven years or something trying to do some clever look at the way he's changed sort of storyline feels a bit rushed and pointless over the space of only a few seasons but I digress on rewatch I liked most things the same which is to say I rated most of the season pretty well to begin with in my memory. And a couple of the episodes stood out as being better. I mean, Knock Knock did slightly better. And Pyramid at the End of the World I didn't dislike as much. So all up, I feel this remains Capaldi's best season easily. I like it a little more than I used to. And I'm really glad we did this rewatch, Dave. That That's me done. Yeah, it is the season where Capaldi gets to be the star of Doctor Who. Yes. He's not playing second fiddle to Clara, who's the most important, wonderful thing ever <laughs> to happen. And, you know, oh, this story is so much about Clara that we can even put her in the credits. Yeah. Like, not, not that I'm saying you can't have strong companions. I'm not saying that. But, but there's something about the Doctor showing a companion the universe that just works. Yeah. And giving Capaldi the chance to do that, to be the wise Doctor to be the alien doctor, to be what we consider the doctor to be. Just seeing him do that and, and such a extraordinarily good actor. I've really appreciated watching him this time. How good an actor he is. I think this is just the the formula that Moffat perhaps stumbled on by accident and it's given us his best work. Yeah, and, and tying us back into the discussion about Millie Gibson at the start of the episode here, there were conversations around the time that maybe Capaldi wasn't leaving Doctor Who on the best of terms and all of that. Do you remember those discussions that fans were having? I think it was certainly around, but I always took it more as the I'm exhausted, not I don't like the show. Mm, yeah, it, it just made me think back to those times and those conversations and I was watching it thinking... I really hope that's not true or at least is somehow a little different because what a shame. He was doing so well here and he's obviously such a big fan of the show. I know he doesn't want to come back to it, but gosh, what a what a great Doctor we had there for a while. Yeah, fantastic Doctor. Lots of great episodes. I, I, I agree. I, as I said, I went into this episode thinking, oh, I don't want to watch these ones again. I've just watched them, but boy, did I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Shall we wrap it up? We should wrap it up. All righty. Let's move into what we've been watching. I've been watching quite a few things, Dave, so bear with me. I've watched The Pentaveret, which is a 2022 miniseries on Netflix. It's about a shadow organization guiding the world in its development. It's basically Mike Myers playing a dozen different people and doing his brand of comedy, which I know can be a bit gross out at times, but after being off him for some time, I actually really warmed to this and thought it was fine. So, The Pentaveret. I've watched The Legend of Vox Machina, which my wife got me into. Basically, there's a real-life group of voice actors from video games and cartoons and stuff who play Dungeons & Dragons together and they stream their games and they have done over many years and they've built up a big collection of fans and some of these adventures and stories that have resulted from their gaming have been really good so they've created an animated series based on some of those stories they've invented while they were role-playing 
It can be pretty rude at times. I'll say that up front to anyone out there with kids. Imagine the Dungeons and Dragons TV series from the 80s, but with extreme violence, extreme sex, <laughs> loads of swearing. It's, it's like that. Uh, I've also watched Air, which is about Nike signing Michael Jordan to become the front man for its basketball shoes. And it's nowhere near as boring as it sounds. Ben Affleck seems to think he's in a comic 80s pastiche <laughs> while everyone else has been quite serious. But I, I liked it. What else? I've been watching the Alexander the Great series on Netflix, which is one of those Netflix series where they have academics tell the story and then they cut to scenes that are acted out. I'm a big Alexander the Great fanboy, so that hit the spot. And finally, American Nightmare on Netflix, which is a doco about a real-life kidnapping where the setup is so unbelievable and when this young man goes to the police to say what crime has just happened in his house, the police basically call him and the woman at the centre of it liars from the start, even suggesting that she's copying the plot of the movie Gone Girl. And it goes from there. Really interesting viewing. And done in that Netflix true crime style that they've really perfected over the last five years or so, they do some really good true crime stuff. And that's what I've been watching, Dave. Look, I've also been watching a few things, but I'll just mention a couple because I want to really dwell, dwell, dwell. <laughs> Did I go on too long? <laughs> no, 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 because I just want to particularly dwell on one. Okay. Um, I am working my way at the moment through Masters of the Air as that broadcasts once a week on Apple. So this is the Air Force version from the guys who did uh, Band of Brothers and the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And of course, as somebody who was in the Air Force for a time, but also both grandfathers served in air crew in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, this has resonated very, very well with me. I'll come back and talk more about this series when it's done, but I am enjoying that at the moment. I do want to shout out to anybody who's in Australia and likes movies. Next month in March, Village Cinemas have got their 70th anniversary and they're showing a classic movie every day across March. So stuff like Clerks, Alien, Terminator, oh, really? uh, Batman 89, uh, Alien... American Pie, Pulp Fiction, all of those sort of movies. They're showing a whole bunch of different cinemas, so one a day. And I've already lined up with some friends to see stuff like Batman and Clerks that I haven't seen on the big screen. So if you're a movie fan in Australia, I think a lot of movies you like will be on. So I'm just going to give a rare plug for a commercial entity out there, but I, I do think our listeners may get something out of that. I hadn't heard that was happening. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Just check out the Village website. There's a little box for their anniversary stuff. And um, there's some cool stuff going on that, as I say, a lot of it I haven't seen on the big screen. So I'm really quite keen on. I did see Batman 89 on the big screen. It was awesome. Yes. Myself and my comic fan friend at work have both said, right, we're going to go see 89 Batman on the big screen. Because, I mean, he's a massive Batman Michael Keaton fan. And I love, love the Burton movies. So it's just like, right, let's see this on the big screen. So. Yeah. That'll be good. But look, I did watch the next season of Kevin Smith's Masters of the Universe. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I quite enjoyed that. Look, I'm not a massive particular fan of Masters of the Universe, but I was the right age as a kid to watch the cartoon. And my sister watched Shearer, so, you know, I, I grew up with it and I had the toys. And this was a really enjoyable. But what was interesting is after it launched, Kevin Smith did a big spiel on his podcast, Fat Man Beyond. And he talked about getting the second season. I thought well, this was actually really interesting to get a creator's experience with a streaming provider, in this case Netflix rather than Disney, but but it is pertinent, I think, to others. And he said after the first season launched, he was waiting to find out, do we get a second, do we get a second? And they said, we are not even going to consider this for three months. In okay. three months, we're going to get all the data we get over three months, then we'll call you in and we'll have a conversation. 
I think we all sort of know that there is a lot of data analysis that goes on by these streamers. But hearing Smith talk about just how much detail there was was really quite interesting. He said not just do they have the numbers of how many people watched it, but they then had breakdowns of how many people binged it. If people were binging it, where did they stop for a gap? Did they sort of get halfway through and stop for a week or did they get to almost the end and then come back the next day? Mm. He could tell, you know, these are where people dropped off the show completely, how many people rewatched it, all of this sort of data. It was only when they had that, they said, right, it has been successful. We're giving you a second season. I think, Rob, you and I have noted many, many times when shows go out, have this big first season, we're like, of course they're going to renew it. And you have to wait three to six months and then Netflix or Disney or whatever go, yep, we're now commissioning the second season. Mm. And to hear that process was just really, really interesting. And it's going to be interesting because we've been used to fans pouring over BBC audience figures for the last 15 years or something and analysing ratings to death. And that's going to be nothing compared to what Disney's doing with their algorithms behind the scenes. Yeah, that's going to be huge. And it's it's interesting, though, because obviously they are filming the second series of Doctor Who already with, without knowing that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So there's certainly a certain amount of faith in it. But I, I, you know, I talked at the start about Masters of the Air. That is a show where I come home on Friday night and if I'm not doing anything, I'm like, right, has the new episode dropped? Yes, it has. Stop everything. I'm watching the next episode. Much like when Andor came out and you and I and our friends were like, Right, Andor's out. We're getting home. We're watching the next episode of Andor. They can tell if people are doing that mm-hmm. or if people are going, yeah, look, I know Andor's dropped. I've got a bit on this weekend. Um, I'll get to it sometime this week yeah. or maybe I'll get to it next week. And they can just see how enthusiastic audiences are to watch the very next episode or, yeah, oh, look, I raced to watch the first couple, but I'll, I'll get to the others when I get to them. Yeah. Masters of the Air interests me very much. And when I get an Apple subscription, it will be one of the the first things I stream off Apple. Also, Masters of the Universe. I watched that first season Kevin Smith put out at the time and it fatigued me so much. There was so much fighting and fandom going on in no small part due to things Kevin Smith had said, like it wasn't a bait and switch and He-Man was going to be in all the episodes and that didn't turn out to be the case for that first season and it became quite a fatiguing thing to watch and actually deal with fandom over. So I haven't actually dived into the second season yet, but I will. I watched He-Man as a kid. I played with the He-Man toys as a kid. Joe Michael Straczynski wrote a bunch of He-Man episodes when we were kids, Dave. It's um, it's something he that's did. dear to me. I will get around to that. No, he did. And, and, and interestingly as well, Kevin Smith did say on the podcast that it had been quite a tumultuous experience for him, sort of seeing that fan warfare, that fan backlash, and he's sort of like, oh, they all hate me, all the rest of it. And so when he did do the second series, he, he did sort of, as he said, spend the first couple of days sort of hiding under the doona going, I hope they like it this time, and then coming out and getting a lot of people going, look, I wasn't a fan of the first one, but you've nailed it this time. And yeah. just, just it's been a very different experience for him, so that's really cool. Oh, I'm pleased for that. Dave, next month you've come up with a concept and we're going to do it. Yeah, so as you know, Rob, on the Doctor Who show, we sometimes do typical classic favourites like diving deep into a season or something like that. And occasionally we just have these weird, bizarre topics that you or I come up with and just go, (laughs) let's give this a try. Let's do something a bit different. And this next month coming is definitely one of those. We're doing what I've called alternate histories. You could also call it sliding door moments. And that is we're each going to pick four, five, six moments in the show 
where things could have gone a different way. And not just say, wouldn't it be cool if Dave got four years? Or wouldn't it be cool if Tom only did five? You know, whatever. We're going to go to a bit more depth. We're going to say, right, this was a possible turning point moment for the show. What if this had happened? How does that actually play out? What does it look like? What happens to the show? What 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 of our history changes? What of our present changes because of this? So hopefully, if we play this right, it's going to be not just... Wouldn't it be cool if this swapped out with this? It's going to be, mm. I want to change this moment in history. I'm, I, I guess, Rob, we're, we're now the time meddler. <laughs> and we're going back to points in Doctor Who's history and making somebody stay or, or cancelling a show or doing a different script or whatever it might be and going, how does that actually look? I think it could be very interesting. It could. And, and as, as I've started to think about them in my mind, some of them are more depressing than I expected. Oh, really? (laughs) But we'll get to that next month. (laughs) We will. Until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time on The Doctor Who Show. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net.